Psalm 111. Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright, in the congregation. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Full of splendor and majesty is his work. His righteousness endures forever. He has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. He provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. He has shown his people the power of his works in giving them the inheritance of the nations. The works of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. He sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. Mark chapter 1, verse 21. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsed him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. And they were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. We are continuing our time in the season of Epiphany, and if you uh, have never celebrated the church calendar or Epiphany is a strange word to you, Epiphany just simply means unveiling or a revelation. And so the time of Epiphany is a time in which we celebrate the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and his revelation in our midst. That is to say, Christ did not just come and remain hidden or work in dark or do some sort of secret salvation, something that was hidden from the public, but indeed he did everything openly. At his trial, Jesus testified, I taught in the temple and in the public square. Here we see him going through this region of Capernaum, and the first thing he does is he arrives at the synagogue. And so this season is a time in which we look at portions of scripture that demonstrate how Christ revealed himself 
to us. Not just us in a uh, vague sense, but really as the church of God, though he revealed himself to the people of Israel at that time, that revelation has been recorded faithfully by the apostles, encoded in scripture, and given to us through the church as the Holy Spirit has preserved the scriptures for us. And so mixed with this theme of epiphany, if you've been here for a while, you might remember that for 2018, we've had one central aim, which is this personal and corporate renewal in the enjoyment of God's word and God's spirit. So personal and corporate, individual, family, church, personal and corporate renewal in the enjoyment of God's word and his presence through worship, his spirit. And so what we're looking at today is a passage in which Jesus marvelously demonstrates the power of his word. And that word which he speaks forth, which he teaches, causes an effect. That word provokes a confrontation, as we'll see. So as we go through this passage, I want to look at four specific things. Jesus' teaching being done with authority and how that brought a sharp contrast to what the people in that synagogue were used to hearing, and how that reveals something about the nature of religious systems that do not have truth at their center. I want to look at the demon's reaction as he responds to the word that Jesus has just preached. I want to look at Jesus' demonstration of the kingdom as he takes authority over that evil spirit, And then finally, I want to apply it at the end, looking at how do we respond to Jesus in the light of this passage? What are we to make of what Jesus has done in this chapter? How are we to see ourselves in this story? And just for the record, uh, if you're putting yourself in Jesus's place and you're immediately hearing this message saying, I need to learn how to cast out demons, you're putting yourself in the wrong part of the story. We're going to see what I mean by that. You should, if you're a disciple of Christ, you should learn how to pray for people. But at first, when we look at this passage, we're not the Savior. That's what we do with the scriptures, isn't it? Have you ever heard David and Goliath preach the wrong way? David killed Goliath because he trusted in God. You should trust in God so that you can kill Goliath. That's not the story. The story is we're with the Israelites on the sidelines who were too afraid to fight Goliath. That's where we are in the Bible. So when we, when we come to passages of Scripture, we have to read them closely to see what is God saying to his people through this. And I think the central aim of this passage is this, that Jesus' word is necessary if we are to be delivered from evil. That's what I think the sum of this passage is. So after Jesus called his disciples to follow him, he immediately goes into the synagogue. And this is very important. Jesus is not preaching privately in homes. He's not going to special places that are at war with the people of God. He goes into the synagogue because that is where God's people are assembled. And if you have some qualms about that saying, well, that's a Jewish synagogue and it's clearly not a church, it's actually the case that that is a church, that there is a remnant of the people of God in that mixed multitude. 
Just as today, there are people who are truly followers of Christ, and there are people who are seekers, and there are people who are far from Christ in this church, in every church you've ever been to. There's always a mixture. And so Jesus comes, and he goes to the synagogue for one specific purpose, because he's revealing how God is keeping his promises to Israel. Not to some abstract people, not to some people that are far away from the covenants. He's fulfilling God's promises, which came to Abraham and to Abraham's seed. So he goes to the temple and he does this intentionally. As Mark records, he uses the word immediately. And we saw last week how when Mark uses the term immediately, he's he's heightening our senses to, to pay attention that very quickly in this story, in this account, in this historical narrative, there will be something about the kingdom of God being manifest. So Mark uses the word immediately to say there's, a, there's a, about to be a response or a reaction that is going to come about when Jesus arrives at this synagogue. He began saying, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand And we saw how that was a summary statement of his teaching. He arrives in the synagogue and then begins to preach to God's people. He goes to the synagogue because, as he said elsewhere, he was called first to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Jesus is coming to his people to gather them into this new group, the church of God. In verse 21, it says, they immediately went, they, the, Jesus and the disciples, immediately went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and they were all astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Jesus' teaching immediately brings a very sharp contrast between the authority that the scribes used that is, no authority, and the authority that Christ used, which is ultimate authority. After the crucifixion and resurrection, Jesus says, all authority has been given to me. And even before we see that at the end of Matthew, the beginning of the gospel, he teaches with authority. Jesus Christ does not bring a man word, he brings a divine word. He teaches with authority, and that word that goes forth causes a reaction in his hearers. The people in the synagogue are astonished. That is to say, they had never heard anyone preach with anointing and power in their synagogue. They, this was an uncommon response to a sermon or a teaching. In, in the synagogue system, they had a very similar system to what we have today. They would sing hymns, they would have someone read the scriptures, and then they would have someone explain it. And this pattern actually doesn't belong to the Christian church after the resurrection of Jesus. It belongs to the church throughout the scriptures. This is what Ezra did when they were coming back out of exile. He had someone read the law, and then he appointed scribes to explain the law in other words, so that the people in smaller groups would understand the sense of what was being taught. And so this same tradition ripples down through the ages, and Jesus comes and enters into that mode of teaching as the the true teacher. He teaches, and they are astonished at the power of his words. The late R.C. Sproul said this, that nothing divides like truth. Nothing divides like Jesus. If you weren't aware, R.C. Sproul is a wonderful theologian. We use his materials for the systematic class that we do here. And he, he recently passed away. But in a question that he responded to, the question was, isn't it wrong for us to debate the things of the gospel? And if you, if you said that the answer is yes, that we just ought to be 
welcoming of all opinions of what the scriptures say, you would have to rip apart the New Testament. Every single epistle is a debate about what the gospel truly is. That's what the epistles are for. And so Jesus comes in and he brings a sharp contrast. Jesus said, I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. I didn't come to bring peace on the earth, but fire, and I would that it were already kindled. Why? Because fire separates metal from dross. It separates the stone from the, the, the straw. It brings a division. It brings a division between truth and error. Jesus' teaching immediately bore the fruit of the kingdom because it delivered his hearers from the spiritual delusion that was over their hearts and minds, having, sought, uh, having sat under that sort of teaching. The people being stirred by the Holy Spirit understood the difference between the teaching of God, the pure gospel, and the traditions of men which were peddled by the scribes. So Jesus comes and he begins to preach and they are immediately caught off guard. This is something to take note of. Have you ever read in the Bible where it says, behold? And it's very easy for us to skip over behold, especially if we've heard the scriptures so often, because that's just one of those religious terms. You know, you don't hear people say behold in the public square today and in, in English conversation. But what is that word to do? It's to cause us to stop and notice. That's what they had to do. In response to Jesus's pure gospel teaching, they noticed this is something different. This is something entirely different from what we're used to. We, we, have, to, we have to understand what's going on. Why is he able to teach this way? The scribes routinely would wax eloquently. They would use the traditions of men and the teachings which were handed down by the rabbi to do one principal thing, which was to expound the law in fine detail. The traditions of the elders and of the scribes and the Pharisees, they made it their mission to be experts in God's law. They perverted the intention of God's law, which was to mark sin, in order to take that law and make it a means by which they could demonstrate their righteousness and perfection. We see this throughout the New Testament, especially in the book of Galatians, when as the gospel is having much fruit in the Mediterranean region, some people come up from Jerusalem and they start teaching the Judaizing teaching, which is Christ is not enough. You must also be circumcised and fulfill the ceremonial law in order to come to God. And so Jesus routinely in the Gospels, we hear him rebuke the Pharisees and the scribes. In Matthew 23, 23, Jesus says that you have neglected the weightier measures of the law or the weightier things of the law. You've, you've made it about all of the specific little details of the external things. And Jesus then goes on to say, you should have taught those things without neglecting the weightier matters of the law, which is mercy, grace sacrifice, love for one's neighbor. And so this is what God's law was to do. Remember, the law of God was given in a context of grace. Just as Adam received a garden before he was told not to eat of one tree, so also the people of Israel were delivered out of Egypt, which they could not have done by their own power. They were delivered by God's mighty power and installed into the promised land and then given that law as they were going to receive that land. So the law was not given by God to mark out righteousness. It was given to mark out sin, as the New Testament tells us plainly. But what the scribes had done is they had made it a means by which people might be able to approach God. And yet 
Paul tells us rightly, no flesh can be justified by the law because all have broken the law, all have sinned. So opinions and traditions of men we see will never deliver a soul from darkness. It is not enough that you go to a church and hear teaching It must be the pure gospel. It must be God's word brought to bear and applied faithfully by the Holy Spirit. The opinions of men are worthless. They are actually worse than hearing nothing because they delude you into thinking, I'm now approaching God. This is why I'm routinely grieved when I go into a bookstore. I try not to do this. I went on on Christmas break, I went into a bookstore and I just looked at the content of what was in the Christian section. It breaks my heart, brothers and sisters. There is so much that is peddled and sold, which has nothing to do with righteousness, but is just self-help repackaged as Christian truth and Christian teaching. The Christian gospel is that All have sinned, none can come to Christ, none have anything worthy in themselves, and they are in deep need of rescue. And apart from the atoning, pure blood of Jesus Christ, they cannot be washed clean. They cannot be made into new creations, no matter how many times they turn over a new leaf. In their day, the teaching which pervaded over their synagogues was a works righteousness. And in our day, slowly into the church, that same sort of teaching is creeping in and being tolerated. Another great heresy in the church today is that Christ came so that you would have health, wealth, prosperity. We looked last week at how when Jesus calls his disciples, he says, follow me, and he gives no extra detail. He says, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. Later on, when Peter, after the resurrection, is coming to Jesus, Jesus told Peter that when you were young, you got to go where you wanted to. But when you are old, someone is going to take you where you do not want to go. And he he made him stretch out his hands. And, And John interprets right away in his gospel. He says, this was to show by what manner of death Peter was to glorify God that Peter would bring glory to God in dying like Christ. Christian tradition tells us that Peter was crucified upside down. And immediately Peter then says, well, what about that guy? And so we have this difficulty understanding today because so much of the church has drunk this prosperity gospel, even subtly, that if you follow Christ, things will start to turn around in your life. The problem with that is it's a little bit true. In some sense, if you are filled with the destructive effect of sin, Christ's gospel will bear fruit in your life. You will get temporary relief from things that are currently plaguing you in your relationships, in the way that you approach life and and orient yourself to the world. There will be some measure of relief, but Christians are not immune to deeply grievous things happening to them. All the disciples of Christ have to bear their cross. Jesus said, if anyone wishes to come up after me, if anyone wishes to follow me, he must take up his cross and deny himself. I was reading at the early start of this year in Jonathan Edwards, when when he's writing his resolutions, he said, resolved to ask myself daily and weekly, in what way have I denied myself? And that hit me like a ton of bricks because I very seldomly do that. That's what the Christian gospel is, that, that Jesus atones for us and he recreates us by the Holy Spirit and causes us to come after him and follow him and to begin to imitate 
his manner of life. And so this is exactly what Jesus' teaching is doing in this passage. It's bringing a great and sharp division from the opinions of men, which are crafted in order to get man to be able to be acceptable to God, versus the pure gospel, which, according to the Apostle Paul, stops every mouth. What, what, what does it stop the mouth doing? It stops the mouth boasting in itself. It marks out sin, and it provides exactly one remedy, which is Jesus Christ. Still today, as we just looked, there are people who peddle the traditions of men in the church. The antinomian gospel, that is, a gospel which delivers you from doing anything that God wants you to do, which is a false gospel, and the prosperity gospel, which is Christ died so that you could have a comfortable life. These are traditions of men that tickle ears. They occupy time. They delude people's spirits, and they cause people to not have true growth. The scriptures routinely warn us against letting ourselves be impacted by this teaching in 2 Peter 2 and 2 Peter 3. And and in fact, the entire book of 2 Peter was given for this purpose. Peter's concerned that false teaching is coming into the churches. And he tells them over and over again, watch out for false teachers who draw men to themselves, teaching just traditions. Likewise, if you would teach others, you have to teach the pure word of God. Paul, when he was writing his letters to Timothy, said, watch out for yourself. Watch over your doctrine, for if you teach, you will save both yourself and your hearers. You can't teach, Timothy. Paul's saying to Timothy, you cannot teach what you want. You can't teach what you would think. You have to teach pure doctrine. In another place, in 1 Timothy, he says, you have to teach according to a pure pattern of words. That is, Timothy had to first receive the teaching of the scriptures and then apply it to his people, to those he preached to. And this is exactly the same in evangelism. Not only in preaching and teaching, also in evangelism and sharing and encouraging with one another, we cannot simply bring our opinions We have to become those who would receive the word of God, eat it, eat the scroll, have it go down into our belly, have it be sweet and then bitter, and then we can speak it, just like Isaiah and Jeremiah. This is what we have to do with God's word. So, upon teaching the people, Jesus' words immediately bear fruit, and they cause a confrontation in which we see his glory. Immediately there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. This evil spirit was not disturbed by the synagogue. In that system, just like in our system today, it is very common for people to attend the same church week by week. And in their day, it was even more common because we today have cars, we can go on vacations, we can go to the other part of town. We don't have to go to the synagogue in our town. In that day, it was much more common that if you went to synagogue, you went to the same synagogue every week for most of your life, unless you moved to a different town. And so I'm implying or inferring from this passage that this person's evil spirit was comfortable in that synagogue that this was not his first time in that synagogue, and that prior to Christ's word being uttered, there was no confrontation between the evil realm 
and the teachings given at that synagogue. The presence of this evil spirit therefore suggests that there was a familiarity, a comfortability between the powers of darkness and the teachings of the scribes, that they went hand in hand. Earlier I said the prosperity gospel does nothing to deliver a person out of evil. That's where I'm getting that idea, is right here. This evil spirit was comfortable being in that synagogue. The synagogue had rules for cleanliness on the external, but this man has an unclean spirit, as Mark records. An unclean spirit, a spirit that defiles. Mere external religious affiliation does not do anything to produce a transformation of the soul. This is so important for us as people who are coming to Christ, people who are seeking to attend church. We have to see that merely attending religious services does not necessarily produce a transformation on the inside. I think it's quite clear from this encounter that this man needed a deliverance. He needed healing and that this evil spirit was comfortable hiding all the while he was defiling. He was an unclean spirit, a spirit of uncleanness. And yet he was perfectly fine being in this synagogue. The demon's words, though the words of the enemy, reveal three great things about the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now, It is wrong to use the words of a demon to be the basis of truth. However, what Christ does in this passage in response to those words shows us his glory in three separate ways. The first is that demons are unclean spirits. Because they are unclean spirits, the reaction shows that Christ's words have a cleansing effect. Have you ever burnt yourself or scraped your leg in in a way that is really bad and it exposes a lot of skin and flesh? If you take an antiseptic and you apply it to that exposed skin, what happens? It stings right away. Um, I was listening to a comedian a few weeks ago and he was explaining that pain is a sudden rush of information that you needed to know. (laughs) And I thought it was so good, it stuck with me, that when you stub your toe... Your foot is telling you very quickly, very loudly, that's where the wall is. (laughs) What, What is that antiseptic doing? It's explaining to you that cleansing is painful. And cleansing produces a reaction. And so we see through the demon's response to the clear teaching of Jesus Christ is that the word of God produces a cleansing effect in its hearers when attended by the Holy Spirit. That the word of God being uttered causes a confrontation with darkness and evil versus light and cleanliness. So Jesus said in John 15, 3, um, he said, the word, you are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. This is after Judas has left the room in the, in the upper room discourse. Um, at, at another place, Jesus tells that my words to you are spirit and they are life. They bring life where there's death. While gospel fruit is often unseen at first, it will eventually become manifest, and occasionally it is manifest right away. In my experience, most people who come to Christ do not do so at the first hearing of the gospel. Nevertheless, if they are coming to the truth, it will become manifest. Paul said the deeds of the flesh are evident. And so there is a, div- there is a division between unclean and clean in the gospel. The second thing is that the demon, the unclean spirit, names Jesus' identity as the Holy One of God 
And by this naming, we see the need for the Spirit to work the effect of the gospel. It is not enough for someone to hear the gospel unless the Spirit also brings an effect. The demon's mere knowledge of the fact of Jesus being the Christ did not produce a spiritual transformation. Now, this might be a little bit confusing because we know that God has not offered redemption to the evil spirits. However, when the demon cries out, I know who you are, Jesus of Nazareth, you are the Holy One of God, it shows us that this demon has accurate theological knowledge, but he doesn't want to obey Jesus Christ. He doesn't want to love Jesus Christ. He receives the fact of Jesus being the Christ. He says, who are you, Jesus of Nazareth? What have you to do with us? Why are you here? Have you come to destroy us? And then he says, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. That word Holy One is an interpretation of Psalm 1610, in which the psalmist is saying, I know that you will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. Peter used that in Acts 2, that same passage. The demon's reaction to Jesus and naming him as the Holy One of God shows us quite clearly that the Holy Spirit must cause an internal transformation. That mere knowledge, intellectual belief, is not enough to cause a transformation of character and soul to love Christ. Even though you might know that Jesus is the Christ, that does not mean that you have come to him as the Christ. That you've, that you've run to him for safety and security. The third thing this tells us is that the spirit was hardened in its opposition to Jesus, and even though that it was opposed to Jesus, God overcame its puny rebellion. Puny is such a great word, isn't it? That's what this spirit was trying to do. He says, have you come to destroy us? And by that, I take that to mean, have you come to loose our effect over these people? Now, interestingly, and we don't have time for it today, but he uses a plural pronoun, us, and I have to imagine that this evil spirit had friends in that region, or possibly friends in that person. He, he is concerned, that evil spirit is concerned, that it's going to lose its grip over these people. Through Christ, God shames this devil who desires to lead men away from Christ, and he then uses that devil to point to Christ, naming him as the Holy One of God. Isn't that very interesting that the whole point of this time of Epiphany is the revelation as, of Jesus as the Messiah, Jesus as the Christ, and this evil spirit is trying to oppose Jesus. And so often, God then takes that opposition, overcomes it, and uses it for his own good. If you've remembered the story of Joseph, Joseph tells his brothers plainly, you meant it for evil, God meant it for good. That God is so powerful in his sovereignty that he is able to impose his will on the enemy's will. That ultimately, all the evil that Satan does is being transformed into a good effect for those who love God and are called according to his purpose, as Romans 8 tells us. So this evil work that this demon is trying to do, this unclean spirit, even that is being used to glorify Christ. So Jesus' immediate triumph over this evil spirit shows us the great revelation of the kingdom of God coming in their midst. Verse 25, Jesus rebuked him and saying, be silent and come out of him. And by be silent, I think Jesus is saying that he does not wish for this evil spirit to be 
the messenger or the name piece or the mouthpiece for his mission. Nevertheless, it is inescapably understanding the reality of who Christ is. Verse 26, the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. Jesus began his ministry, as we saw last week, teaching this one thing. He said, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And we, we explained that things which are at hand are within reach. If the clicker is in, in hand, I can use the clicker, right? It's in my hand, it's at hand, or it's near, it's on the incoming, it's, it's at the door. We, we use that analogy of a person who shows up to dinner early. Whether you're prepared or not, you have to welcome, you have to open the door. Just so you're aware, it's not polite to ask them to go back to their car for five minutes. You let them in. That's what Jesus is saying. I've brought the kingdom with me. And then as soon as he is teaching, he demonstrates the kingdom. In the clash between his kingdom and the domain of darkness, he demonstrates the reality of the kingdom. In Luke 11, when the evil uh, Pharisees are coming and saying that Christ is casting out demons by the prince of demons, Jesus rebukes them and unpacks this reality. He says, if I cast out demons by the finger of God, in Matthew, Matthew records it as the spirit of God. Luke records it as the finger of God. If I cast out demons by the finger or spirit of God, then know that the kingdom of God has come among you. So what Jesus is saying in that place is he's saying, wherever the fruit of the kingdom is being manifest, that's where the kingdom is. And here we see this great clash of kingdoms between light and darkness. The darkness cannot overpower it, as John 1 tells us. The darkness couldn't overcome Christ. And Jesus triumphs by the sound of his voice, by uttering the words of God. Though the evil spirit resisted him, Jesus had all power and triumphed over him immediately. This is demonstrated by the account, by the experience. This evil spirit tries to resist, This is why it cries out with a loud voice showing the struggle between that person and the evil spirit as that person being a lost sheep was being rescued from the evil influence. And this evil spirit is kind of struggling to hold on to any sort of last vestige of power or influence and it loses its territory immediately. This is what Jesus does when he utters his word because the kingdom of God is unstoppable when God brings the kingdom. This shows us that even knees which belong to those who are under the earth will bow to Jesus Christ. Every evil spirit that has ever lived will bow to Jesus Christ. This is why I love, I've been reading a lot of fiction lately because it helps my imagination sometimes put words or put a a, a mental picture to the reality. In Philippians 2, Paul says that all knees, every knee, whether it be in heaven, whether it be on the earth or under the earth, the classical categorization of those things which are light, good spirits, men, and demons, all of them are going to bow before Jesus Christ. That's why I love understanding that great vindication which will come at the last judgment where Jesus Christ is going to be at that throne and every knee is going to bow in unison. Every single spirit or human will submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ. It's such a wonderful picture, and that's what Mark is doing by showing us that this voice cried out and it lost its power, it lost its control. 
Christ's preaching was attested with truth and power that our faith might not rest in man, but in God. And when Jesus speaks, God is speaking. Paul does this exact same thing with the Corinthians. He said, the, our preaching was not in words of human eloquence. It wasn't using patterns of rhetoric. It wasn't using emotional appeal. It wasn't using trickery of language. It was in pure gospel. And then he says, and demonstrations of the spirit. That is that Christ was attesting to the authenticity of the gospel by attending it with signs and wonders. So, after the evil spirit came out, the people are amazed and see the glory of Christ. Verse 27, they were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves, saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and obey him. Those two things are linked in this story. At the beginning, it says he was teaching, and then they take notice of his teaching. And then the encounter with the evil spirit takes place. And then at the close, again, they summarize saying that his teaching and power over unclean spirits, they're one in the same. That Jesus uses his words to command that evil spirit to come out. Verse 28, at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. Isn't that what the season of Epiphany is all about? Is that there's this great breaking in of light and, and Jesus' fame and, and the recognition of who he is and our necessity to come to him and his power over evil, all of that is exploding and all of Galilee hears about it. Today we can do things like, you know, an internet broadcast or a tornado siren or a tweet or whatever. In that region, the way it happened was people were so shocked by an event that they went and told their relatives and they went to tell their business partners and people who lived in nearby towns, you have to hear what just happened in the synagogue in Capernaum. Jesus battled this evil spirit and it, it yelled in the middle of church. Can you imagine how startling this is? I've never had anyone manifest a demon in church, though I've experienced it many other times. How startling would it be for someone to do that in a church? We're, we're often so disconnected from the story and the reality. In this day, it would have caused Christ's fame to spread rapidly, as verse 28 said. Everyone in that region heard about this story, no matter what. Christ's teaching is demonstrated in this place as a pure, grace-filled, and attested by the power of God teaching it is demonstrated as having an effect, as causing a conflict, as causing a resolution that in a point of indifference to God's word, there has to be a decision made and that the powers of evil cannot stand to sit under the influence of Christ. The contrast between the teaching of the scribes and the teaching of Jesus shows us of our need to come to him alone. As we said earlier, it is not enough that we listen to religious opinions. If they are not the word of God, they are worth less than nothing because they are actively distracting us from the word of God, which is able to save our souls. One of my favorite new phrases as I am testing all things by the scripture is book, period, chapter, period, verse, period. I can't rest on your opinion, on my opinion, I have to rest on Christ's word and Christ's word alone. Even among the true prophets of God, this is very important as we love to examine the Old Testament scriptures. Someone in the Old Testament, Elijah, had raised someone from the dead. 
But in the Old Testament, two miracles that Christ does in the Gospels never happened in the Old Testament. One is in John 9, when he opens the eyes of a man born blind. And the second is deliverance from an evil and unclean spirit. At only one place in the Old Testament is there any relief found from an evil spirit. It's when Saul has a tormenting spirit because of his rebellion against God. David comes and plays some music and that spirit leaves him for a little bit. But when David stops playing, the spirit comes back. Saul's tormented by this evil. No one other than Christ can deliver from evil. That's what this passage is showing us. Unlike empty words of men, Christ's word alone can deliver the soul from not just the power of an evil spirit, but the power of sin as well. Just as the man with the unclean spirit was in the synagogue, it is not enough that we come into the church unless we come to Christ himself. This is the danger of being in a pretty good church. The danger of being in a pretty good church is that we might think because of our association with strong believers that we are strong believers or that because we know people who are impassioned for Christ that we ourselves are those people. It is not enough to be acquainted with Christ. We must know him and he must know us. What does Jesus say when, he, when the, the people, he, he said that at the last judgment, people will come and they'll say, Lord, Lord, did we not cast out demons in your name and heal the sick? Did we not teach in your name? And he says, depart from me, you who work lawlessness. I never knew you. What does that mean? It means there can be deep religious affiliation without reality. That's what Jesus' words are bringing clarity to. This man who probably went to that synagogue for years was not truly a child of Abraham. He was not really in the light. He was oppressed and kept under by this unclean spirit. So we have to come to Christ. We have to receive his word. His word has to have the intended effect. The Holy Spirit has to breathe on that word, cause it to bear fruit, and deliver us from enemies that are too strong for us. Satan, the power of the world, the power of evil. Jesus Christ, therefore, is still willing and able to bring healing and cleansing, for he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now, up until this moment, I haven't examined the question of whether a demon can exist in a Christian. And by this passage and by accounts and acts, I believe that there are people who, though they name Christ, are still under the influence, not possession, the influence of evil spirits. And because of that, we have to ask ask the question, what can bring deliverance? In our age, to deny that reality is to simply deny pastoral experience over hundreds and hundreds of conversations that I've had in which someone is very clearly suffering not just under the weight of their own sin, but under years and years and patterns of sin such that they've invited evil into their life. And when someone's coming to Christ, we have to ask ourselves this question. If Mark is telling the truth, And if you're a Protestant evangelical Christian, you believe that Mark's words are the words of God. The question is, where did the demons go? Did the demons just want to leave when Jesus raised from the dead? Christ did defeat the evil powers, but as we see throughout the Gospels, there is progressive victory over evil. For example, in Luke 11, Jesus sends out his disciples. They go and they cast out demons. They come back to him and Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning. 
from heaven. What happens in the epistles? Paul tells the Ephesians, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against spiritual powers in heavenly places. Wait a second, I thought in Luke 11, Jesus saw Satan fall like lightning. He did in that region for that time. So I believe that evil spirits do exist. I believe that evil spirits torment Christians and especially the unbelievers. And the question is, what are we to do about it? If there is a need for deliverance, and this church has a wonderful deliverance ministry, if there is a need for deliverance, it has to be based on this, that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that he is willing and able by the power of his word to deliver us from evil. To divorce the power of sin as a mysterious power and not recognize that there is a real enemy is to cut the scriptures in half because the scriptures always present them as a package deal. The power of sin, the power of the world, the power of the devil, they always go in a package. So, what are we to do in the light of this? Are we to come to Christ in mere externals alone? No, it must be in substance, it must be in the heart, and we must come to Christ in faith, that he has the same power to deliver us from sin as he does to deliver us from evil. Because the word of the Lord remains forever, we can have victory in Christ over all powers of evil and sin. That's what John says in his epistles. I write to you, young men, for you have overcome the evil one. Why? How? Because the word of God abides in you. That's what we need. We need Christ to utter his word and for it to take up a home in our hearts. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ, his manifestation to your people, his power over evil, which he demonstrated in this passage and in so many others, that throughout the, the gospel of Mark, he's delivering and healing and counseling and teaching and lifting up broken hearts and binding up bruised people. Lord, we are so much in need of your healing. As a people, Lord, we are often pestered by evil influence and enticements to sin and things, Lord, which go beyond temptation but are truly the effect of evil powers. Christ, we ask you that you would not only let us see your victory in this passage, but that you would help us to see that now you have been installed on the throne of the heavens and that you have all authority and that you reign. We pray, Lord, that you would give us this faith and that in seeing you and in looking to you, we would be delivered over from all of our enemies. We thank you for this victory that we have in your name and in your name alone. We pray, Lord, that you would bring your kingdom in a greater way in this place. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.